Good morning. My name is Cindy Tyree, and I will be reading this morning's scripture to you from Romans 8, 28 through 39. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who, then, is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you know, for some people, last night was quite a night. For all of us, the last year and a half has been quite a year. And because of really not much to do with this sermon, I I thought I would share something I ran into this week. One of my brothers sent it to me, and I found it interesting. I'll, I'll try to make a connection so that there's some seriousness to it, but it's mostly just funny. It was, it was a text, and uh, the text was a picture of a chalkboard. Maybe you've seen it. And uh, on the chalkboard at the top, underlined words were these, me in 2019. And then the words that followed were these, if I could just have a week with nowhere to go and nothing to do, I could get my house in order. (laughs) Right under that message was this, me and 2021. Nope, that wasn't the problem. (laughs) It seems like a lot of times we think we have it figured out, and if everything would just go right, we'd be okay. If we had enough time on our hands, we could fix our problems. If we weren't so rushed, we would have more peace. But we know that's not entirely true. Of course, it can contribute to our hurriedness and lack of peace. But what we know concerning the scripture is that it takes an overview of life into account. 
all the details of life, all the ups and downs, plagues and famine and everything in between. And then it says to us, God is the sovereign over your entire life, which is underneath what appears to be chaos. In the middle of everything, it will all work out for your good when you love God. And in the end, nothing can separate you from the love of God. We're on Sermon 3, I guess I should say, of Romans. We're galloping through it. I want to remind you of what we have uh, talked about or at least referred to in the last three weeks. These major themes. First, we learn from Romans chapter 1 and following that there's nothing you could do to earn enough favor with God to be right with God. Why? Because you couldn't earn it. It's by grace. Grace through faith alone. Take a deep breath. Second thing we learn. In Christ, because of that faith, there is no longer any bondage to sin. Bondage to sin has been broken by the cross. And what does that mean? That there's nothing wrong in life? That sin is no longer a pest? No, what it means is, for the first time, because of the cross, sin has been defeated. It is not any longer the final enemy, and it cannot conquer those who are in Christ. In other words, because of Jesus Christ, you can live for God. Because of Jesus Christ, and only because of Christ, who has sealed your redemption through the Spirit, Can you say, Abba, Father? Can you love him with your whole heart and your soul and your mind? It's the gift of the Spirit. And yes, Paul is a realist, and Scripture is always realistic. And we find out in Romans chapter 7 that sin is still present. It is a pest. And in a larger understanding of sin, stuff happens. And other stuff that starts with S happens. And sometimes it rolls downhill and overwhelms us. That's realistic. That's what life is like in this present world. But here is the great thing. That no matter how difficult it is or how miserably we fail, and we will, we can be confident of this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You've been given newness of life. And finally, what we learned is that we are adopted as the dear children of God. And our adoption was signed and sealed by the Holy Spirit himself. You might expect there's even more good news. 
And the rest of the good news that I want to highlight from Romans is all in chapter 8, preceding these verses and then later in chapter 9. And here's what Romans says in the later half of chapter 8. Right now, Paul says, I want to acknowledge reality. Here's reality. We suffer. We suffer in our bodies. We suffer in our souls. We feel overwhelmed sometimes. But that suffering, even though it's inseparable from glory, because Christ suffered and was glorified, and we suffer and will be glorified, even though it's inseparable, that suffering is not comparable. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase? Why is it not comparable to the glory that will be revealed? Because the glory that will be revealed in us will completely eclipse all the evil and all the pain and all the suffering. Like a pitiful mirage, it will vanish. The suffering, it's temporary, and the glory, it's eternal. He goes on to say, the suffering that I'm talking about is not just about you. The suffering is also about creation. Because the creation itself has been subject to decay because of the curse of sin. It too is under a curse, just like we are. And this creation looks with great anticipation to the future, that is, its restoration. Here's a couple of words that help you understand what it means, that anticipation, that anxious looking forward. Creation looks forward to its deliverance, waiting with raised head to the horizon, like a person looking for what's coming next, like a person with a craned neck, It's anticipating the future. The creation itself is anticipating the future with crane neck, with eyes on the horizon when it will be fully restored. And just like we will be raised because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, creation will be restored, will be raised to its pristine original nature. Creation renewed, by the way, is a significant, very significant theme in Jewish apocalyptic literature and in Christian apocalyptic literature. It's not just about us. It's about all the good things that God has created. Then Paul makes a comparison between that resurrection and ours, that restoration and ours, And he says this, we wait eagerly and we wait patiently. If you're following along, the first section was from verses 19 through 22. The second section I mentioned is from verse 25. In other words, Paul says, we long, I want to acknowledge, we long to be released from sin and suffering. 
We groan inwardly. We eagerly anticipate the resurrection of our bodies. So let me pause. Last week, the week before, the month before, when you were under severe distress, either because of pain in your body or natural decay of the human condition or the circumstances that so dragged you down emotionally that you felt like you were on the precipice of death, do you know what that was, says Paul? That was your entire being eagerly longing for the resurrection that is eventually going to come. That is our existence. I've been around, I don't know how many, but a lot of saints at their deathbed. It wasn't the first time I watched somebody die, but the first time I watched somebody die here as a pastor was Ward Scott. I went over to Meadowoods Health Pavilion to visit him and Mary Nell. And as I pulled up, she pulled up. And we walked them together. And no sooner had we walked them together and chatted for a moment, Ward breathed his last breath. And his life was gone, and he was ushered into eternity. I could tell you one story after another of being at the bedside of a dying saint. But one I want to mention to you was the time where my wife and I visited Ruth Cowley. Many of you know Ruth Kelly, an amazing saint of God. And as she was wasting away in hospice, we were talking together. And Ruth continued to be Ruth right down to the end. Instead of saying anything about her body failing, instead of highlighting any suffering, She said, tell me about the kids. How are they? And then down near the end, Ruth looked at me and she said, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Now, for an ordinary person, That might have meant, I don't want to be here in this place. I want to be in my own room. I want to be in my own bed. But she didn't stop. And she said, Bob, I mean home, home. You know what I mean. She was wasting away. And not too many hours after that, she passed from this life to the next. She was longing on the inside of her being to be with Christ. 
She was anticipating as a follower of Christ that she would someday have a resurrected body. That she someday was going to experience glory and that the glory she was going to experience would all but eclipse the suffering of the past. Those who follow Christ and trust have that within them. Down near the end of chapter 8 in Romans, we hear one of the most famous phrases from the apostle Paul, a series of phrases. Perhaps the most famous is is 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, but this one is a, a close second. Paul is uh, trying to describe what he means about how, how amazing all of this is. And I want to read it again. He breaks into these words and he says, what then shall we say in response to these things, this grace, this suffering, this hope of glory? What shall we say in response to all that? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we can say. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's just the nature of God. He's going to do it. It's almost as though Paul says, God can't help himself. He's that good. And who can bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one can condemn when God has justified. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he launches into a description of of life that he's experienced as an apostle and links it to an Old Testament passage of the same reality. And then he answers his own question. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us? Not death. Death is humanity's last, final enemy. And even then, we cannot be separated. What else can not separate us from the love of God? Life. In the context of what Paul, Paul has said previously, what he means, I believe, is life that really is bad. Life that is full of suffering, life that is full of loss, not even life like that kind of life can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
not angels or demons. In other words, no supernatural force in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not the present or the future. Let's put that differently. Not the fears of today or the worries of tomorrow. That pretty well takes care of it. Neither of those can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No power above, no power beneath. And then as if he wants to say, if I've forgotten anything, if I've forgotten anything, not anything else. Add to my list, not anything else can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we think about these promises, so many things come to mind. If I wasn't just a preacher on Sunday morning, if I was a teacher and I was exegeting all these verses, one of the things I would do as a teacher is I would give you an assignment. And your assignment would be, think about these words and then write words of application to your life. What does it mean? I mean, that's what I do every Sunday when I preach because I should. But that's what you ought to do too. Even though you're not the preacher, you ought to look at the words and walk away with them and say, how does this apply to yesterday, to today, to tomorrow? So just my suggestions about how it applies. First, our sufferings. I know there's very few people, except you guys who are younger, in this congregation who haven't had at least one surgery. You know what I'm talking about? Not all surgeries go well. I get that. But when they do, an amazing thing happens. The pain post-surgery, if it's a really tough surgery, the pain post-surgery is excruciating. The only thing that helps if you're normal is you can take high-level painkillers and sedate yourself for a while. I've had two rotator cuff surgeries. For those of you who don't know, that's one of the most painful. At least the doctor tells me that. For me, I couldn't take the narcotic drugs. Because when I did, the chairs started spinning in the room, and I started seeing multiple wives, and I've only had one for 40 years. <laughs> it's horrifying. It's a... <laughs> hey, I was talking about the chairs, okay? Not... It, it's horrifying. So I had to do four ibuprofen. That's all I could do. And the pain was tremendous. And I thought to myself, in the middle of all of this, I'll never be able to sleep again. 
I'll never be able to roll over on my side. I'll wake up every 15 minutes for the rest of my life. I'll never be able to throw a baseball again. And it's not true. The pain receded. I've got tiny little scars. And I can throw a baseball or a football just like I used to, except I'm older. My shoulders work fine. And I almost, not really, but I almost can't remember the pain. Why? Because the glory of my body functioning adequately eclipses the pain that I experienced. Maybe that's a helpful image. Paul says the pain that you experience, the suffering you now go through, is going to be eclipsed once you inherit glory. Pain and glory are inseparable in this life because of the cross and because of our life. But eventually, it will be glory. Second point of application. Creation is under the same weight of suffering that we are. As evangelicals, and I am one, we do have on occasion a tendency, even though it's part of what makes the evangelical gospel of Jesus Christ powerful, even though it's part of the power of our proclamation, we can have a tendency to internalize everything and make it about us. We could look at that passage and say to ourselves, this is about my personal suffering, and it is. But it's also about global suffering, kind of suffering we haven't even experienced. And it's also about the creation itself under, as Paul says, bondage to decay. Creation, Paul says, is groaning to be liberated. And we're the first fruits of that liberation. We frequently uh, use passages in the Psalms and other places and refer to them in sort of poetic language. Let let me challenge you to think about them just a little more literally for a moment. Passages like Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare, pronounce, speak the glory of God. Or Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Or Psalm 148. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens. And you waters above the sky. And it goes on to talk about the earth. Or how about this verse that If you're like me, you first think of the book of Revelation, but it preceded Revelation. It comes from Isaiah 66. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. 
God is going to take the creation that is subject to decay, is suffering in its own way, parallel to our existence, and he's going to reshape it and recreate it and make it perfectly new. So, most of you know, or perhaps all of you know, that I'm actively involved in something I never anticipated as a pastor and focusing on creation care. If you want to use a little bit more political buzzword, this is not about politics. Environmental stewardship. Passages like this in Romans and the other passages have taken on a new meaning for me. Here's what I used to be. I used to be a consumer of God's good gifts in creation. Now I've moved to being a caretaker. Perfectly? No way. But a caretaker of what God has given, the good gifts of creation. It takes me all the way back to the first three chapters of Genesis. This creation that is under the weight of sin, not because it did anything wrong, but because the curse of Adam and the punishment of God is upon it. This creation is going to be restored one day. So here's two approaches to considering that. One, you might say, well, it's naturally under decay. It's going to erode, and maybe you think it's going to burn up. So why not just use what we've got? Exhaust the resources that are ours. Work it over. Let me ask you to think about an analogy for a moment. You and I are created in the image of God. That's different than creation, but creation is creation. Do any of you, I hope not, look at your bodies and say, well, I'm going to die anyway. I'm not going to exercise. I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm just going to, some people might say, abuse my body because I'm going to die anyway. I hope you don't think that way. I doubt you do. Because you know when you abuse your body, you can feel the pain. You experience the suffering. Compare that to creation. Is it okay for us to just look at it as consumers and say, we'll just burn it up, we'll do whatever we can with it, it's ours anyhow? Or, like the gift of our body, should we look at creation and say, what is the best way to use the resources to cultivate the earth? to care for creation. That's all. Take the politics out of it, will you? I didn't say anything about politics. All I said was what the Scriptures imply. So the third uh, point of application is this. 
I love the phrase by Paul where he says we wait in anticipation and hope. End of sentence period? No. And we wait patiently. That's the crux of it, isn't it? When you're in the midst of suffering, you anticipate hope, and sometimes your anticipation of hope can almost be angry. I want out of here. I hate the suffering. But Paul says, we hope and long for and crane our necks towards the future, and we wait patiently. Right now, in the midst of whatever suffering is ours, we wait patiently and we hope. Or shall I say, the reason we can wait patiently is because we have a hope. It can't be separated. Not for the believer. We have hope, so we wait patiently. What does that patient waiting look like? Looks like being good stewards. What does it look like? It looks like people who are waiting in the midst of trouble and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors. What does it look like? It looks like just loving our neighbors without judging them or shouting at them or even preaching the gospel with words. It means loving our neighbors until their hearts are open to the good news. And it means celebrating too, doesn't it? Waiting patiently. Celebrating what God has done in Jesus Christ and the blessings that are all around us. I know I say this a lot, but I'm not going to stop, okay? So I'll just tell you that. You can't do that. You can't really do that by yourself. That's why you need to be here. That's why you need to sing with people behind you, in front of you, and beside you. The words of the hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Yeah, I know the song by heart. And I can sing it by heart. But I need to sing it with you. I need to hear your voice affirming the same thing. And you need to hear mine as well. That's how we wait. So, uh, final reminder about what Paul says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not the terror of death, which is real. Not the difficulties of life, which are real. Not supernatural forces, which are real. Not fears of today or tomorrow or worries of any kind, which are real. And not any kind of power, human or otherwise, which are real. 
I'm going to try to keep my voice low because I want to shout it. Oh, forget it. I'll shout it. (laughs) Paul says, what? Who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise. The promise that has been given to us and solidified in real history of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was more than a miracle. It was a statement about the future. It was a statement about our future. It was a statement about the future of the world. The restoration of Christ's body was just a microcosm of the restoration that will come. We thank you for that proof, shall we say. And we thank you for the promise or the hope that we will inherit that resurrection and our world will too. And we thank you for the admonition to wait patiently and to focus on that very real present promise that nothing in all God's creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen.